Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. Today we are continuing our study in uh, Holy Week. We're, we're moved up to Tuesday. Tuesday is going to be in two parts, unfortunately, because there's just too much information to cover to just one in the amount of time that I've allocated to myself for these podcasts. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you as we go through Holy Week that your Son is given to us for our salvation. We ask you, Lord, to open our hearts, minds, souls, spirit, and body to the words you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're on Tuesday. When Jesus arrived in the city on Tuesday morning, the city being Jerusalem, he's confronted by a series of hostile questions. They intended to trap him in front of the crowds, and he had a battle of the wits uh, with the Pharisees and the scribes, and demonstrates his, that demonstrates his wisdom and his deep understanding of what Scripture says. The first four questions came from Jesus' opponents. Uh, but then after they finished, he uh, turned the table on them and asked a final question that they could not answer. He condemned the hypocritical leadership and commending, commended an impoverished widow. Uh, we won't get to that part of it until uh, session two, but let's just continue on. After leaving the city and sitting on the Mount of Olives, Jesus predicted Jerusalem's destruction and his second coming. You know, what a day this was. Now, as I mentioned in, Mon- in the study of, uh, concerning Monday, uh, while Jesus and his disciples were making their way into Jerusalem on Tuesday morning, the disciples discovered that the fig tree Jesus had cursed had withered. And Jesus used that as an opportunity to teach the disciples on the topics of prayer, faith, and forgiveness. His point was, and it still is, God does great things in response to the prayers of his, of his people. Now, when he got to the temple, the temple court became a theological battleground between Jesus and and his enemies. At every turn, Jesus demonstrated the depth of his wisdom. The first question focuses attention on the previous day's disturbance in the temple when he cleared the temple of the money changers. Question one was, by what authority are you doing these things? You know, this came from the leading priests, scribes, and elders, and like I said, it related to the previous day. They were representatives of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. Jesus responded to them by asking them a question concerning the origin of John's baptism. Was it from God or was it from humans? The point is that both John's baptism and Jesus' authority came from God. So the questioners were not put off by Jesus responding with a question because that was the typical form of argument among the rabbis of that day. His opponents thought they had him backed into a corner. See, because the crowd, the people, believed that John the Baptist was a prophet from God. So, if they were to say his baptism was from humans, then the crowds would stone them. But if they said it was from God, 
then they would be asked why they refused to be baptized by John. And since they didn't answer Jesus' question, he refused to answer theirs. So he responded to them again by asking another question. What do you think? And he went on to tell three parables. In the first parable, Jesus drew a contrast between two sons. That's in Matthew 21, 28 to 32. The father in this parable approached the first son and asked him to go to work in the vineyard. The son initially refused to go, but afterward he regretted his decision and he went to work in the field. So the father went to the second son and asked him to go work in the field. The son said he would he would go work in the field, but then he didn't. So Jesus asked a penetrating question as he's standing there in the temple court. Which of these two did his father's will? Now Jesus' opponents unwittingly responded, well, the first. And, but the point of the parable is that the first son represents the tax collectors and prostitutes who were entering the kingdom of God rather than those who were questioning Jesus. The former responded to John the Baptist's call to, to repentance, while the latter group did not. Then his second parable is a further condemnation of the religious leaders in Matthew, you know, verses 33 to 46. It's also over in Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, and in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. We have the parable of the vineyard owner, demonstrates both God's patience and God's judgment. Now the background of this parable is the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7. So the imagery would have been very familiar to everyone. A landowner plants a vineyard, builds a lookout tower, he puts a fence around the vineyard, digs a pit for a wine vat. So his audience would have understood the story as an allegory condemning the Jewish leadership. Now the main points are, are evident from over in Isaiah. The vineyard, and from his uh, parable, the vineyard represents Israel. The tenants represent Israel's leaders. The owner represents God. And the servants represent the Old Testament prophets. You know, throughout Israel's history, God's prophets were rejected. The beloved son represents Jesus, and the murder of the son represents Jesus' death. Now the giving of the vineyards to others represents the judgment coming upon Israel and the establishment of this church. So the interpretation of the death of the son is understandable to us because we can look back on everything that happened. But the religious leaders understood clearly enough, and they tried to arrest Jesus. You know, God's patience is demonstrated in the parable by the continual sending of prophets, despite Israel's failure to heed their warnings. Now, the parable concludes with two rhetorical questions. The first question Jesus asked is, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? That's in Mark 12:9. The owner of the vineyard, like I said, is none other than God himself. Now, those who thought they controlled the, the vineyard, they found themselves cast out in the vineyard given to, to, to others. Then the second rhetorical quest, question leads to Jesus' quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. 
Mark 12, verses 10 and 11. Now the phrase about the cornerstone, like I said, is from Psalm 118, verse 22. That rejected son is the rejected cornerstone. Now Psalm 118 in itself is a thanksgiving hymn. It celebrates David's victory over his enemies and it was quoted at Jesus' triumphal entry. David was a cornerstone, rejected but ultimately victorious. Jesus is the greater David, rejected by his countrymen, but nevertheless the cornerstone. You know, Matthew adds Jesus' words as, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. So, you know, these religious leaders knowingly know he spoke the parable against them. They wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't because the crowds are all around. You know, it's a judgment of, uh, from God would eventually come through the Roman army beginning in the Jewish war in 68 AD that resulted in the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Now, his next parable concerns a great wedding banquet, and that's in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Now, there are three scenes in the parable. In the first scene, the king sends out his servants to call those who had been invited, but they refused to come. The king was concerned that they should come, and he sent out other servants with a more urgent call requesting their presence. They still refused. The king was furious and sent troops to put to death those who rejected his gracious invitation. You know, in this second scene of that parable, the king sent his servants out onto the highways and byways to bring as many as would come, both evil and good, to the festivity, until finally the wedding hall was gilled, was filled with his guests. Then the third and final scene of the parable details the discovery of an intruder to the feast. There's someone there who's not dressed appropriately. See, the clothing represents the righteous character of those who were attending the feast. Rejection of the stipulated wedding garment indicates disregard and disloyalty toward the host of the feast. A kingdom of God demands in its subjects both a proper confession of faith and a lifestyle that is equal with that confession. The intruder without the appropriate clothing was cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 22:13. Now we move on to the second question these religious authorities had for Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, they had failed in challenging Jesus' authority so now they're trying to alienate him from the crowd. Now, the presence of the Herodians with the Pharisees at first seems odd because they were not allies with the Pharisees and they disagreed on, on most issues because the Herodians were supporters of the Herodian dynasty installed by Rome as the client kings. They were very political. The Pharisees were much less political, but they have a joint interest in getting rid of Jesus. So the two groups began by flattering Jesus. They gave him four insincere compliments describing his integrity, his fairness, his impartiality, and his truthfulness. 
The irony is that what they did not truly believe about Jesus was actually true of him. You know, they were hoping to catch him off guard by their flattery, of course. And so now they're questioning him about paying the Roman poll tax. This was a tax that was paid by all adults in Judea. The tax amount was one denarius annually, which we talked about earlier. It's one day's wage for a common laborer. Now, this tax was a very volatile issue in Judea, and Jesus is fully aware of why they're asking the question. They believed they had rock Jesus between a rock and a hard place. If he answered yes, then the crowds would be upset with him, and if he answered no, then he would, he would be putting himself in opposition to the Roman government. Now, Jesus' response is, give me a denarius, give me one of the coins. Now, this coin had Emperor Tiberius's image on it and included the inscriptions, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. That was on one side. And on the other side, it said high priest. Now, for the Jewish people, the image on a coin was idolatrous, excuse me, and the inscriptions were blasphemous. Now, Jesus' response is actually quite brilliant. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God's. That's Mark 12, 17. You know, you can't take his words as an anti-Roman zealot in opposition to Jewish taxation by Caesar. However, Jesus' statement cannot be understood as pro-Roman either, because service to God is fundamental, and God is ultimately over Caesar. So they failed again. Then question three is, uh, just to sum it up, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now this next question concerns the resurrection of the dead. Let's see, the Sadducees were in the majority in the Sanhedrin, and they didn't believe in bodily resurrection from the dead in the future. The scenario they presented to Jesus is a ridiculous application of the Old Testament law of leveret marriage, which is found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Now, according to Old Testament law, when a man died without a son, his brother was to marry the widow and produce children to carry on the family line. The first son of this marriage was considered to be the son of the dead brother. So the Sadducees' proposal was meant to show the supposedly ridiculous concept of a future bodily resurrection from the dead. But Jesus pointed out two errors in their thinking. First, he rebuked them because of their ignorance of the scripture. The Sadducees would have been greatly insulted by Jesus' rebuke since they were well educated in scripture. The resurrection of the dead is most clearly referred to in the Old Testament prophets and the writings. But the Sadducees accepted only the Torah, those are the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, as their ultimate authority. So Jesus goes to the Torah and answers them. Now he first pointed to, to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And he demonstrated that God's covenant with the patriarchs did not end at their deaths. They're still alive, for God is the God of the living, and he's not the God of the dead. God's covenant relationship with his people extends beyond their physical death, which means that the afterlife must be a reality. 
then Jesus challenged the Sadducees' failure to understand God's power. They assumed that the age to come would just be an extension of the present age, and that's not true. You know, God can give bodies suitable for the present age. He can also give bodies suitable for an eternal age. You could go see 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 58, where Paul talks about that. In this new existence, there's no need for sexual reproduction because there's no more death. Intimacy and marriage are superseded by fellowship of a multitude of fellow believers with one another and especially with God. In this sense, believers will be like the angels, Matthew 22:30. And then they think they've really got him. Question four comes with which command is the most important of all? A scribe who overheard Jesus' answer and recognized his wisdom asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now the law contained 613 separate commands. Jewish leaders frequently argued about which of them was the most important than, than all the others. Now, while there are no commandments of God that are not important, they were recognizing some as more significant than others. Now when Jesus replies, he combines two commands from the law. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. is known as the Shema because it begins with a Hebrew word, Shema, which translated means listen. The greatest commandment corresponds to the first part of the Ten Commandments, which deals with a person's relationship to God. The oneness of God is foundational to Jewish and Christian monotheism it is the basis for the command to love God with wholehearted devotion. Now the second great command is from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. This commandment corresponds to the second part of the Ten Commandments which uh, concern a person's relationship with others. You know the words as yourself means to love others just as much as you love yourself. Now, it's not a call to some sort of self-centered love. Jesus taught his disciples they should be the servants of all. That's Mark 9, 35, uh, Mark 10, 43, and 44. The point is that everyone cares for themselves and their physical and emotional well-being. Now, the two commands are not independent of each other, but are intricately related as one command. Their integration precludes a spiritual life that is concerned only with one's own spiritual growth on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's unconcerned with serving others. God demands that we be serious about our relationship with him, and that relationship is to be worked out in serving others. Now, the scribe's response that loving God and neighbor is more important than all offerings and sacrifices emphasizes the foundation nature of these two commandments. Then they go on to question five, which we're going to pick up probably next time and finish up Tuesday of Holy Week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I ask you to uh, stay with us through uh, part number two. Father, thank you for this opportunity to teach your word. I ask you, Father, that your children, the listeners, 
would take your word, Father, incorporate it into their lives as they go forward in their Christian walk. In Jesus' name, amen.